I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. First importance. If you knew the church in Corinth, there could have been a lot of things that Paul could have talked about as of first importance. There was sexual immorality in the church. There was abuse of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There was debauchery at the Lord's Supper. There was division in the church. And he does address all of them. But actually, when it comes to summarizing what is really, really, really important, he's saying, I'm going to give this to you as of first importance. This is the priority that you must take hold of as you look at it. And when he's talking about this priority that he's passing on, he's saying, I am receiving, I, I am passing on to you what I have received as of first importance. Paul is not an innovator. In church circles today, we're obsessed with innovation, with making something trendy, with making something tarted up, with uh, wrapping it in a different, more attractive package and taking credit for it. Innovation is highly prized. And yet Paul is saying, I am passing on to you what I have received. I'm passing on to you something of first importance. This is really something we should pay attention to. But it's not my idea. It is something that I have received and I'm passing on to you. He's standing on the shoulders of the other disciples who witnessed Jesus' teaching and Jesus' life. That Paul didn't physically. And he's saying, I'm taking on board what my brothers and sisters in the faith have passed on to me, and I'm passing it on to you. What incredible humility. What a stark contrast in terms of the leaderships of modern-day thriving churches where everybody's trying to single themselves out to be different, to be better, to be more attractive, to be more interesting. Paul is saying, I don't care about that. I'm not going to give you anything new. And probably people hated him for it, and they did. They dismissed him. They said, who is this guy? He's not as good as so-and-so and so-and-so. And Paul is thinking, I don't care. What I want to bring you is something solid as a foundation that was passed on from the Lord Jesus himself, from his life and ministry through the other apostles onto me, and I'm passing it on to you. It isn't about creativity, but it is important. It is of first importance. It's a priority. Talking about Jesus' death and his death for my sin and your sin for Paul, that's a priority. It's the most important thing. It's of first importance. And he's really stressing that out. Increasingly, I think we need to also learn in the church of Jesus Christ uh, what is of first importance and what is not of first importance. One of the reasons why I think at the moment globally evangelical churches are really struggling with a lot of division is because we're beginning to mix up what's of first importance and what is not of first importance. Now I was reflecting upon this and I've got several friends who will have, who I will have and, and we will have different opinions on what I would call secondary issues. And now I'm just lighting up a grenade because <laughs> I'm probably going to get emails over this. But it's true. Ian and I have a really good friend of ours who will have a different position that probably Ian and I would have on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, on the role of women in the church, and probably on the second coming. 
In fact, probably I don't know what opinion we have on the second coming, but that's another issue. (laughs) Yet they are thoroughly evangelical, orthodox, Bible-believing people that I will have fellowship with, and I could sit under their teaching and listen to what they have to say. Why? Because we disagree on secondary issues. The moment they would deny the virgin birth, the moment they would deny the resurrection of Jesus, the moment they would deny the authority of Scripture, the moment they would deny the existence of heaven and hell, that is a not, those are not secondary issues. The three I have mentioned are secondary issues. We can both look at the scriptures and we're standing on the shoulders of church tradition and theologians that have wrestled with. This is not just come like that. And we can both look at it with all integrity and look into the scriptures and come to different opinions. And we can live with a disagreement in good fellowship. Those are secondary issues. And we need to realize what are secondary issues and what are non-negotiables that we cannot, we cannot move from. Salvation is by faith in Christ through grace alone. Non-negotiable. No room to maneuver there. But if somebody believes that women should be or shouldn't be elders, both can pull up the scriptures and have a discussion on it and reach different conclusions. Paul is saying, this, this, what I'm saying to you right now, is of first importance. In other words, Paul is saying, this is in the non-negotiable category. This is not one of those you can say, I'll take it or leave it, and you can have a different opinion on it. This really is a priority. I think the slides are all messed up, so maybe just turn them off, because I think everybody's going to get absolutely bamboozled. The first thing is this, that's a priority. The second thing is, we have a problem. And I talked about the issue of sin, which was really mentioned when Paul is talking about this. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. In order to get the good news, we need to hear the bad news. There's no other way around it. And the bad news for Paul is spelling it out. Christ died for our sins. Do you know, we agonize over so many of the issues and problems in the world. But this is the problem, the problem. We can talk about politics. We can talk about social issues. We can talk about the environment. We can talk about anything you want. And you can identify problems everywhere. But in reality, this is the paramount problem. And it's always been like that for humankind. And Paul is saying... I want to bring you some good news, but before I need to tell you the bad news, our sins. He doesn't say their sins. You know, when it comes to sins, when it comes to anything that we do wrong, we're so quick to point a finger at somebody else and say it's them. Paul doesn't give us room to do that. He's pointing at the fact that we have our problem, our own problem, and he talks about our sins. Sin and the Greek words that are described in the New Testament for sin, one is of missing the mark. And if you imagine, this is how my imagination works, a a, a dartboard, you know, and kind of needing to hit a particular, I haven't got a clue about darts, needing to hit a particular spot in order to get the right amount of points, you know, I, I just think you need to hit towards the center, I think. 
Is that right? Anybody nod to me? Where is Derek? Not really. Great. Okay, I'll keep going. I won't dig it. The, the idea is to try to hit the right spot, and you're missing it. You, you get, we all get this. We're missing the mark. The other one is trespassing. Again, there's an area that is out of bounds that we're not meant to get into, and we do. So both those words in the Greek language describe sin in the New Testament. And that's what we have done. We have missed the mark and we have trespassed. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve rebelled against God's boundary, where he said, out of that tree you should not eat. And the serpent comes, tempts Eve, and both Eve and Adam eat of the forbidden tree. And they end up being... The ones that introduce this virus that comes into the world, spiritually speaking, called sin. And it infects everybody ever since. You know, we could have talked about the virus about five years ago. And you would have been like, has Christy been reading, reading some microbiology? You know, what's going on here? Now we're all experts on viruses. We get it now. We really get it. We get it what it means to be contagious. We all still remember what it's like when you're thinking, where is this going to go? Where is this going to go? What's going to happen? Is it going to be a cure? There's discussion about this new strand of hepatitis for children. Especially start beginning to talk and say, you know, how is this going to be treated? We won't be able to give... Transplants to every child who catches it. It's the same with sin. Through Adam and Eve, sin enters into the world and viruses the whole relationship between us and God. And everything is messed up. Everything, death comes into the world. We were not meant to die. It as a result of sin, we become mortal. Our relationship with God is separated and our relationship with one another is messed up. And you have brother killing brother. People are saying, why is this happening in the world that we live in? It's because of sin. It is because of sin. It is because of that virus that has entered the world through Adam and Eve and is carrying on. And there's a huge problem with huge implications in every part of our life. That's why Paul is saying this is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. He's addressing it because it's so crucial and it affects everything in our life. Life, And that's why Paul is really challenging us us to understand that this is an issue. If you want another definition of sin, it's cosmic selfishness. It's it's selfishness in in, in the utmost that is in every single one of us. And when when I'm saying that, it probably gives us an understanding when Paul... In order to anticipate the, the, the fact that very often when it comes to anything bad that we do, do you know what we do? We always minimize our own shortcomings and magnify others' shortcomings. We play this game subconsciously. And normally if I was to say you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, you would probably think, well, compared to who? I am not as bad as so-and-so. I'm not Putin. How dare you call me a sinner? Or we just pretend. We just think, well, yeah, I am, but 
I lied, but it was a white lie. I'm actually curious whether actually that expression exists in other languages. You can talk to me afterwards. We certainly don't have it in Romanian. White lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. And Paul anticipates this. And in Romans 3.23, he says, For all, all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. There's no room for maneuvering. There's no room to say it's the Man United supporters and the Everton supporters and the people that are old and the people that are young and the people that live in that country or that. There's no room for maneuver. All includes me and you, every single one of us. And just as we might be tempted to kind of find an escape route from it, he's saying we fall short of the glory of God. So this measuring standard of our sinfulness, it's not somebody else that we may want to compare ourselves and conveniently choose somebody who seems to be more evil than myself, but it is God's glory. God himself. And at that point we go, well, okay, yeah. I I don't think I can. (laughs) Yeah, all sinners, all below the line. Yeah, Putin, we might feel we can, you know, fare better. Glory of God, all below the line. That's what Paul is saying. Christ died for our sins. We couldn't save ourselves. We needed him to step into our place. And again, in Romans 5, verse 6, Paul is saying, while we were still helpless, helpless, we couldn't do it. We were helpless. It's like throwing somebody in the middle of the ocean and say, just, you know, use your arms and legs and swim. Oh, but I don't. Just try harder. You're going to sink and you're going to die. You can't save yourself. And Paul is saying, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We have this problem of sin, Paul is saying, and we can't fix it. We need somebody to come from the outside and fix it. You and I would know we have different abilities that we're good at. Some people are great with numbers. Some people are great at technical things. You know, some people are great at horticulture. Different one of us have these skills. But if you don't have them, you don't have them. You know, I, 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 I could go and place a, a, a new device in, in the hands of my dad and say, just work it out. He can't. Because he doesn't have the skill and the ability to do that. He needs some help from the outside. So he's going to say, can you come and put me this? Paul is saying, we have a problem and it's our sin. But there's a solution. Because when Paul talks about this, he doesn't talk us to shame us. He talks us to enable us to understand that God, through Jesus and through his death and resurrection, came to make a way to sort out the problem, to bring a response to the issue that we have. So that's why Paul is saying, I passed on to you what I have received as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. Yes, we have our sins. We have a problem. But the good news, Paul is saying, is that Christ died for them. And that is the beginning of solving the problem that is there. Sin can be solved. And that's the good news. 
It can't be solved by ourselves. We can try harder, and people do. And that's why so many religions have ways of dealing with the problem of sin. Almost every religion understands that there's an issue of human fallenness, but they try to do a DIY job on it. And that's what religion does. It tries to do a DIY job on it. And again, it's almost like that thing where somebody's in a boat seeing somebody in the middle of the ocean and just saying, just try harder, try harder. Good luck with that. You're going to sink. You're going to die. You need somebody who's going to come in, jump into the water, somebody who knows how to swim and get you out. And that's what Paul is saying. This is what Jesus did. Jesus is the one who gave his life, who paid the price, who died for our sins. And that's why Paul is sending us back to the cross, because the cross was God's solution. At the cross, Jesus died as our savior. Jesus died for my sin and your sin. He took my place and your place. Because of the sin problem, our destination was death, both physically and eternally, spiritually. And yet because of Jesus, because Jesus died on the cross, took on the righteous wrath of God that had to deal with sin because God is fair. God is not cruel. God is fair. And only God in his incredible character can marry justice and love and make them so beautiful at the cross where he becomes the solution to the problem that we have. And he solves it himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, Paul is saying, died for our sins. He is at the cross. And when you see him there, you can look at him and you can say, he took my place. He took my place. You can look at him there and you can say, he paid my price. You can look at him there and you can say, that's the wrath I deserved. And Jesus is taking it instead of me. Not because I am lovable, not because I am nice, not because I am some incredible asset. But it is all because of his great goodness and love and grace. Nothing of me and all of him. And the amazing thing is that that death pays the price and sets us free. The virus that has entered us is is keeping us chained. It's like the ultimate addiction in every possible way that you can't escape. And the moment Jesus gives his life on the cross and, and, and defeats Satan and defeats sin, he buys us. That key that opens up the locks, the chains that keep us prisoners. And we become free in him. It's not just that God is signing up the check and saying debt is paid. He's also ripping off the chains and saying, I have set you free from the guilt of sin. But I've set you free so that you can live this new life. Again, the life that Paul is talking about in, in another bit where Paul, in, in his second letter in chapter 5, where he's saying, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have gone. Behold, all things have become new. That's what it means. And that's how God deals with the problem of sin. Again, writing to the Ephesians, Paul is saying, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. So when Jesus died on the cross, that's when the redemption happens. We have forgiveness for our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 
And then the Apostle Peter, again writing about this, he says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And Paul is saying, this had been all revealed. When you go home, read Isaiah 53, because that's the voice from the past, almost 700 years before that talks about the plan that God had for our redemption. What do we do with this first important good news that Paul is talking about, that Christ died for our sins? First importance, it's a good time to ask the question, what do you chase in life? What's the first important thing in your life and my life? I remember the words of C.S. Lewis uh, when he said, don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose. Most of the unhappiness in our life is because we have built idols in our lives that end up disappointing us. And when they go, it hurts. Let's make sure that we embrace the first important things that Paul is talking about. We will never be disappointed. Embracing Jesus' gift of salvation and living as the people whom he has purchased and set free. That's the life of no disappointment. We have to deal with the problem of sin in our life. And frankly, you might be very relieved to know that I don't know how you deal with the problem of sin in your life. I know I've got it, and I know you've got it. The Bible tells me so. But the question this morning is, how do we deal with that? What do we do with that? Do we pretend that it's not there? Do we hide it, hoping it's just going to go away? Or do we bring it right into the open and let Jesus the Savior come to those who are drowning in the middle of a stormy ocean, unable to save themselves, and to say, like Peter said, rescue me, help me out. What do we do with the problem of sin? That very well-known verse in John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life, believes in him, in order not to perish and in order to have eternal life. That's what you do with your sin. You believe in Jesus. You say, this is true. I am a sinner. This is true. I can't sort it out. This is true. I will let you, Jesus, come and jump into the stormy ocean and save me when I can't save myself. And then you begin to live this life that I talked about of being set free from sin. That's what we do with our sin. In Colossians, Paul is writing about what Jesus has done Through his death and resurrection, he says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Delivered us from the domain of darkness. Live as you're free. Live as you're free. Let's remind ourselves this morning. Because Satan can twist our mindset and can so plague us with his attacks and his temptations that we begin to forget that we are a people who have been set free and called to live in freedom. 
You are not in prison if you know Jesus anymore. Yes, you will wrestle with temptations, you will wrestle with addictions, but Jesus has come to bring that sense of freedom. And unless we realize this truth, and through his help, through the work of the Holy Spirit, and the scriptures begin to, and encouragement of the fellowship begin to live in that life, we're like the slaves that have been bought and still choose to submit themselves to a cruel oppression. Live as you're free. Because that's what Jesus has done in our lives. Have you ever thought about your epitaph? I mean, I don't know if you even thought if you wanted a tombstone. Um, oh, should I say this? I'll say it. I don't like cremations. I like burials. And I like tombstones. I like to think that my dear ones are going to be in a place that I can go and visit. It's just me. I know we, we can have many, many views on this and opinions on this. Now, I've never thought about what I will write on my tombstone. I think it's a bit weird. <laughs> but if you go to a cemetery, and particularly if you're interested in history, a lot of people do like to go to cemeteries where famous people are buried. And very often what is written on their tombstone is something very significant. And here are a few things. I'll give you a funny one. One of the funniest one is Ludolf von Sullen, who is a Dutch mathematician. He was the first person to calculate pi, and he died at the age of 70 in 1610, a while ago. Do you want to have a guess what he had engraved on his tombstone? It starts with 3.14 and it finishes with 5.0. It's because he wanted his proudest achievement to be known by all, even all those years after his death. Dr. Martin Luther King, do you know what they wrote on his tombstone? Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I am free at last. When Jesus uttered his last words on the cross, if you want his epitaph, because he never had a tombstone, because he's alive, he simply said these words, it is finished. It is finished. Probably one of the most poignant declarations, spiritually speaking, that this universe will ever hear. It is finished. And in other words, Jesus didn't, didn't say, oh, my suffering is finished. Oh, my pain is gone. No, he said, Satan's dominion over this universe has been finished. It is finished. What Jesus was saying, the separation that we experience between us and God, it is finished. The bridge has been built through the cross. And now we can have fellowship with God. Now we can be adopted in his family and we become heirs of God when we were enemies of God. It is finished. Our unpayable debt has been paid. Jesus wrote the check and he said, it is finished. Nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to haunt us. When Jesus 
said, it is finished. He took that invisible key that opened up the chains. And he said, now you're set free to live for me. It is finished. Listen, this is your savior. This is your story. And if he's not your savior, I want to say this morning, it can be yours too. Wherever we are with regards to this, as we come to celebrate communion, as we come to think afresh of his death, of his body that was broken and his blood that was shed, we're coming as those people who are celebrating that it is finished. And maybe if you're here and you don't know Jesus, frankly, maybe you've taken communion. You probably shouldn't because it doesn't mean anything. It's just something that other people around you do. I mean, it's not wrong that you've done it because you're just kind of trying to figure out what's going on in church circles. But really, it's only meaningful, deeply meaningful to those who can say when they take it, this is my Savior's body. This is my Savior's blood. This is the Savior that died for me. And if you've never had that moment in your life, when you said this, this morning is the time to do that. And what I want to say to you, if you've never ever done that, if you, you know, some of you might be, this is one of my greatest haunting fears. That I will be one day standing before Jesus. And there will be people that possibly would have sat in the chairs in front of me when I preached. And they thought, They were Christians, and they weren't, because I didn't do a good job of explaining what a Christian is. They thought that coming to church makes you a Christian, reading the Bible makes you a Christian. Having been christened as a, however old you were when you were christened, giving to charity. And I want to say to you, none of those things make you a Christian. The only thing that makes you a Christian is realizing that you're a sinful person, For whom Jesus died on the cross. And you need to take that step. And you need to know when you do it. If you've got doubts in your mind. I want to say this morning. Don't let doubts. Have I done it? Have I not done it? If you're not sure. You can be sure this morning. What I want you to do. Is at the end of the service, just come and sit on the front rows. And people in our prayer team, we just love to pray for you. So that you can, with your very own words, say this morning, Jesus, I realize that you died for my sins. And I want to receive that gift of forgiveness that when you died on the cross, you paid the penalty for me. I also want to receive the freedom that comes from that to follow you. And to live my life for you now every single day that I have breath from you. Would you do that for me? Because that's what being here this morning, hearing that reminder from Paul, sitting in front of the communion is all about. It's about remembering his death and recognizing that it's for us. Let's stand together.